One of my favorite things about doing Jimmy's Jobs of the Future is that we get to profile entrepreneurs at all stages of their journey. So we've had the likes of Sarah Wood on, who exited Unruly a number of years ago. And then we've had people like Herman Narula, who's raised a mega round of 500 million. And today's guest is right at the start of that journey, so much so that this is their first ever podcast. Patrick Pinto is the co-founder of Really Clever, a company which is looking to make sustainable materials out of fungi. They've just raised three quarters of a million pounds from angels and VCs, including Hoxton Ventures. You can hear the passion that Patrick talks about with the subject. The colossal size of the leather industry makes it a mountain that they are taking on. But it's fascinating to hear the way he talks about it and the way that he's approaching it through different channels. It really is an inspiring episode and it's great to be able to profile young up-and-coming entrepreneurs like Patrick on the show. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners and I wanted to thank The Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. Patrick, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you for having me on, Jimmy. It's an absolute pleasure to be introduced. So tell us about where the name came from for your company, because I understand this has changed recently and there's an interesting backstory to it. Initially, we actually called our business raw material. And the reason for that was we wanted to describe in a very succinct way the product that we were creating. But taking kind of a step back, we started to realize that the term raw material itself could be very limiting in the potential product development and research and development uh, and the applications that we'd like to produce over the, say, next five to 10 years. And really, we wanted a name that spoke to the consumer, the end consumer specifically. We didn't want to simply just be a kind of business-to-business company that simply uh, lived on LinkedIn. We wanted something where consumers could actually subscribe to and really engage with the brand. And we believe that we basically called ourselves really clever from the sense of the technology itself. But we believe it's the really clever choices by using our material and, of course, the really clever person that makes them. And that kind of supports us in extrapolating the name into lots of different marketing assets. Really clever, not so clever as an example. And so tell us what the business actually does. How is it really clever? <laughs> so the really clever element of our, of our business is very much on the leverage and use of fungi as a whole. So kind of just some very macro uh, numbers. So there's been roughly about 155,000 species and specimens of fungi that have been discovered. And from that very small sample pool, we've had great innovations such as penicillin and cytosporin, bread, beer, all different contexts by which fungi have really touched our lives. But the real fascinating part is that there's roughly between 2.1 and 3.1 million yet to be discovered. 
So we believe that there is an untapped potential in this reservoir of potential innovation that we want to lean into to really drive the needle when it comes to sustainability, more importantly, accelerating that transition. So really clever, um, uses really clever technology to assign characteristics from specific fungal organisms and assign them then to commercial applications. And that's really where the magic happens. So where we are is we're technologically agnostic. And what we simply mean is we don't just simply double down on a particular technology, such as fermentation, as an example. We believe that fungi has the power to touch every aspect of our lives and humanity. And we don't want to limit ourselves by simply creating one technology and doubling down on that. So we're very much kind of a plethora uh, and platform that demonstrates a different array of technologies and applications. You're based in the East Midlands as well, in my part of the world. Why are you based there? The immediate kind of answer is what well, we have heard. So we live in the uh, we live in Corby, um, so in the county of Northamptonshire. But Matt and I actually went to Nottingham Trent University and in search of looking for a hired lab so that we could perform kind of our, our research and development and create our material. Uh, there's very few outside of London, and of course we we weren't in a position as of yet to kind of pay that additional London premium to to be there. So the next best case was actually to be in Nottingham. And conveniently, the team that we had built as well actually were all from Nottingham. So commutes and journeys was far more efficient and easy for everyone. And of course, Matt and I having that link to Nottingham Trent kind of just made sense. It felt like returning hope to an extent. And you met your co-founder at 14? Yes, 14, 15, exactly. What was the story behind that then? Presumably school? No, so actually rugby. So Matt and I actually went to to different schools. So um, we became friends by uh, using controlled violence on the field <laughs> to really uh, to really kind of have that relationship. Um, but yeah, so it was very much in rugby. And I think as any sport, it kind of teaches you the other person's kind of personality type and attributes. And I think that's really where we kind of learned each other and where kind of in the future, we extrapolate those attributes to now become obviously co-founders. We really kind of, blend together uh, really well. Crucial question, what positions did you play? So I was outside centre, so number 13, hence now my lucky number. And Matt was open side flanker, so very much a forward. Matt makes me look five foot seven. Uh, I am. <laughs> and Matt's obviously over six foot tall. So that's kind of uh, the main bearing by which we made the, the positional choices. I'd say the showboating positions as well, outside centre and flanker. I would <laughs> say that just the former front row. Um, <laughs> and you've recently raised um, three quarters of a million pounds, which sometimes in the kind of grand scheme of, of startups isn't a kind of colossal amount compared to some of the people we've had on the show and so on. But what's what are you going to be spending the the money on? And, and talk us a little bit about how you went through the process with that, because you know it's not software as a service. You are doing a proper innovative product here, and you know venturing into new lands with it. So talk us about how you went through the process of raising that money. Man, and I have a very privileged perspective on what it means to be an entrepreneur and a, and a founder. So we've lived within every single spectrum of what it means to be an entrepreneur all the way through it's kind of a business person and founder so we very much lived and breathed the entrepreneurial spirit in our first business that was a dessert delivery company that was born out of uh, Matt's mom's kitchen which quickly scaled to a franchising model with three city locations and we actually exited that uh, a week prior to the official lockdown way back when in, in 2020 
Well, good timing, right? Well, bad, well, bad timing, maybe for a dessert delivery company, perhaps. Of course, why everyone at that point was at home, right? So maybe yeah. we missed a trip on that. But at that point, exactly. But one one thing that we kind of understood, though, uh, Jim, which is worth mentioning, was as much as we love being in in business, that particular business in in its kind of form didn't really didn't really speak to our kind of values and what we really wanted to create and leave the impact on the planet with, and that was because we were essentially provoking a psychological response from a consumer to increase consumption. And that wasn't something, obviously having a sports background, wasn't really something that we wanted to subscribe to and spend the next 5, 10, 15 years building. So this is kind of one of the main points by which we decided to kind of exit the business. And we really wanted to create a company that really spoke to our values. And that was that we wanted to leave the planet in a better state than when we first found it. Now, that's an incredibly compelling and broad vision, but the journey, the way that we would reach that destination, the destination and the manner by which we would travel was super ambiguous. So this is where we were actually fortunate enough to meet um, our mentor uh, in a gentleman called Andy Shovel. Probably my biggest piece of advice to any founder, get a big hitting founder uh, who's been there and done that, kind of really reduce that learning curve and really give you that confidence to go into building a really big company. So we met Andy Shovel, and Andy really helped us understand the push and pulls within the vegan plant-based food industry. But once we kind of zoomed out and we started to look at, well, where's capital being allocated? But more importantly, where is consumer sentiment and behavior changing? I don't think there is a more prevalent supply chain than the food supply chain that comes with consumer sentiment behavior changing. And I think this has been driven by the great work, of course, of David Attenborough, really shining light on the consequences that our consumer decisions have. And this really started by seeing the emergence of the alternative milk space, now roughly around a $44 billion industry, huge, uh, but of course, still poles in comparison to the dairy industry, about three quarters of a trillion. But of course, we can see that we're starting to make ground when it comes to dairy. And from there, we started to see, well, what is the second order effect from us trying to remove dairy from the supply chain? More importantly, again, where consumer behavior was changing. And that was through the emergence of vegan plant-based food companies. Examples such as this, Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods. So it was very clear again, well, if consumers are now not only questioning what they're drinking, they're now questioning what's on their plate. Well, what is the final thing that we believe that they will start to question over the next five to 10 years? And that's the skin and the carcass of the animal. That was about a $300 billion industry, absolute behemoth, roughly about the same size of the GDP of Portugal, just to contextualize the size of it. And we understood that there was going to be a demand and a need for materials that were independent of not only the animal industry, but more importantly, the plastic industry. And this was something that was extremely important to us when defining the company and the technology we wanted to build. And now we understood the destination and, of course, the method by which we would achieve that, being driven by fungi. The next point was, of course, to get investment. Now, at that point, it was two smiling faces in the pitch deck and a, um, a team of Peter Wellen, our biologist slash mycologist, our material science, and Michal as well. So then by roughly February, March time, we uh, built that team. We conceptualize the technology. Then in April, May time, we start to pitch. And this is where we're introduced to uh, Hussein from Hoxton Ventures, which we then closed, as you've referenced, the three quarters of a million pound round. And that was simply to take the two smiling faces into a product and into, of course, a business. And within that nine month period since we've 
um, raised those additional funds. We've actually been able to create material itself with varying specifications, ready for varying applications and products for the end consumer and brand. We've also been able to file technology IP. And in addition, we're finally starting to now begin servicing brands uh, in producing and providing materials. So as you can see, non-technical founders getting into a technical um, job, and then of course, trying to create an output that's compelling to the industry. Not the easiest of tasks, but it's definitely uh, been some elements that are fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued by you both sort of being non-technical founders in, in such a kind of like technical business. I mean, and to go back to the kind of rugby analogy, you know, you're the back and your co-founders the forward. Do your kind of roles represent that similar in terms of how you divide things up now? Do you know what, Jimmy? That was a that was something I never considered, but now I, I will tell you and that will probably feather your point. <laughs> so myself, so I'm typically responsible for the research, development, marketing and sales of the company. Again, like you said, the flair, the show off. And then on the other side, Matt supports very much in the fundamental operations, scaling methodology and the, making sure that we don't overspend. So the finances of the business as well. So you can see kind of the two sides of the same coin. So hence why the, the complementary piece works. As my old rugby coach used to say, the forwards decide who wins the game, the backs decide <laughs> by how many. Um, talk to us, you, you mentioned it a, a bit there about the the kind of TAM and the SAM of the leather industry, effectively. Talk us through the kind of numbers behind that and how you base the service addressable market and the total addressable market. So... I think to assess really the total addressable market, there's kind of a, a complication or a lack of clarity within the industry. And that's predominantly the, the term vegan. Now, veganism does a really great job of describing what's on our plate and extrapolating that information to how sustainable the product actually is. But what it doesn't do very well is when you transfer the veganism label to materials. Because as we know, plastic is vegan. So we're in this kind of position where the vegan label has kind of allowed consumers to quickly believe that something is great for the planet when in fact, potentially the worst of the two evils is actually included in that material itself. So when we talk about vegan leather as a whole term, which I'm not a huge fan of, hence that particular point, the real need is not only just being driven by the animal derivative aspect of the leather itself, it's being driven by the mitigation of plastic and also forks plastic leather. The reason for the emergence of plastic leather was because supply of great leather hides at a cost palatable to the industry, there was not enough demand, hence why plastic leather came into our lives to care out all of our furniture all the way through to our clothes. So with those, what we have started to notice quite explicitly is this transition to electrified vehicles as an example in the automotive industry. We see companies like Tesla offering vegan seats. And we believe that the automotive industry, as they move to an electrical, electrified fleet, that they are also looking for products and materials that are not, do not have a negative impact on the planet itself. So our proposition is a little bit broader than simply speaking with the consumer who simply wants to mitigate the use of animals, is to really give brands the capability and the ability to remove planet damaging products in every single aspect of it. So when we talk about numbers, as an example, so roughly 45% of the industry when it comes to that $300 billion whole addressable market is in sneakers and furniture as an example. So a huge, huge, huge uh, industry. But then of course, funnily enough, that is also one of the hardest specifications to actually meet when it comes to materials or products. 
Hence why there is still a lot of innovation required. As I'm sure you've seen, Jimmy, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen, that a lot of biomaterials have been used in the context of handbags, as an example. Mm -hmm. But yet what we haven't seen is structural products, i.e. trainers. And this is where we believe we fit the gap, is that we want to try and take the biggest portion that we possibly can with specifically in the sneaker industry by providing a product that is free of animals and free of plastic with comparable performance metrics the consumers are accustomed to. Do you skew towards the kind of higher or, or lower end fashion? Is it better to prove it can be used for the most expensive clothes and then go wider? Or is it better to go in at the bottom and work your way up the chain? One thing, like, as you mentioned, Julian kind of man and I are from the East Midlands. And hence, that had a huge bearing on the vision that we wanted to create for our company. And that was to create truly sustainable products accessible to all. And there's two specific words within that phrase. Number one is truly. We believe that our job is not just simply by delivering material to brands. Our job is also increasing the tool set consumers have when making a decision on sustainability. That's a hugely important part for us. And then the, the second aspect is accessible. The accessible piece, meaning that the precursor to change is mass adoption. But for mass adoption to occur, we need two things. Number one, price parity to current leather. And number two, comparable performance metrics. And this is where we believe that we only truly move the needle on sustainability when we allow customers at every single price point to subscribe to a sustainable product and material. Now, is it great to work with a fashion brand that sells 10 and a half thousand pound handbags? Of course, it's great for the business and it's great for perceived value. But in the context of sustainability and really moving the needle and accelerating that transition, we believe that happens at every single price point, all the way from the bottom and all the way up to the top. So that's a key thing for us as well. Looking at your website earlier, which is super well designed, uh, couldn't help but notice you were sort of on Instagram and also TikTok is an area that you're thinking of, of taking this message to. Can you talk us through a little bit about your kind of like marketing plan and, and what the potential benefits of TikTok could be? Um, partly I asked this from a self-interest point of view as we've just started putting the podcast on TikTok, which has been getting some some of the videos have been doing incredibly well. It's been sort of fascinating to kind of uh, watch and learn a bit about as a team have tried to sort of crack this nut. But I'd be very interested in your perception of it as well. The great thing with apps like TikTok, initially um, in its birth, it was very much kind of the silly dances, right? That first kind of took storm and everyone was a bit, had an allergic reaction to really what TikTok was about. But what TikTok does really, really well is explainer videos. So how do you in an accessible and easy, non-dilutive way, tell people a story about a particular product or in your case, a, a particular service. And that's where we believe that TikTok is great. More importantly is purchasing power. Gen Z, of course, in the next 10 to five years will have the purchasing power when it comes to making consumer decisions. And if they are on the platforms of, such as TikTok, where they're, where they're taking videos of them making things or talking and explaining about certain subjects, we believe speaking to that generation as they uh, grow older, we want really clever to be first of mind. So when they go into a store and they see a really clever partnership with a particular company, we want them to not only choose because it has a really clever material, but be proud in that choice that they've made. And that's really what we believe really works so well on TikTok as, as an example. But kind of having a more broad marketing conversation, for us, it's, as mentioned, we don't want to have a brand that simply lives on LinkedIn. We want to educate the consumers on the great things that fungi typically already do. As an example, there's 
there's a slime mold as an example, which uh, we're, we're currently looking to record. And this slime mold is a single cell organism. But when it sees its different partners and friends, it creates a bigger organism. And that bigger organism can go for a maze to look for a food source. And the minute it finds its food source, it doubles down and it moves all the organism cells all the way through to that food source. And these are the things that we believe that people will share uh, on WhatsApp, as an example, which truly is how we believe that marketing works. Marketing doesn't work by simply posting something on LinkedIn and seeing the engagement hit the roof. Marketing for us is, what would you tell your friend about a particular company? That's marketing. What is it that you would share with your group or on your WhatsApp messages or on a Discord channel? This is really kind of how marketing has shifted from the typical manner of simply posting something, having some sort of copy, have some, having some sort of picture. And then, of course, you're, you're met with another post on your feed. I think with this way, it's a very quick, non-dilutive, accessible way to explain uh, our product, but more importantly, the marvelous potential that Fungi has. And what is the ambition and the plan for the next five years? And in particular, what jobs are you going to be hiring for? The next five to 10 years is definitely the time frame by which we're super excited about. So of course, the biomaterial is taking precedent uh, on the ability to scale and commercialize that particular technology to, of course, work with a broad sector of brands and industries. But the great and fascinating thing with this single technology stack that we've created is that we can also create alternatives to rubber and cling film, as an example. Using the exact same technology that we use for this leather alternative, we can use it for different products, which we understand, of course, are planning damaging and harming, specifically in the context of plastic. So that's very much with the current technological stack that we have. And then the second and kind of third products and innovations that we see over time is things like whole cuts of protein or new novel fungal biopesticides. And the reason why we believe the alternative protein space is super exciting is that we believe there's still a gap when it comes to whole cuts of meat. Typically, when you go into an Asda or a Tesco, as an example, the options that you have in vegan plant-based food is typically kind of the sausages or the burgers or, or particular chicken fillet. But we believe that there is a huge gap for steak alternatives, as an example, like a fillet steak, sirloin steak, a chicken breast, or even a fish fillet. So I think there's a huge gap still um, within that particular industry and category for us to really do great work in that. Hence, again, why Really Clever extrapolates really well to consumer-facing uh, products as well. And then third to that would be uh, potentially in biopesticides. We believe um, that we have found a novel way in which we can leverage fungi to actually remove pests from agriculture that doesn't have to leverage or use harmful uh, chemicals, specifically for honeybees as an example. So it's kind of trying to help the planet in the broadest sense, but also making sure that we're focused and concentrated on the particular sectors and applications we want to create. Tell us more about your backstory in terms of the dessert delivery company. And this is obviously a very different company that you're doing now, but I imagine you took, you've taken a lot from what you learned from that and using it in this experience. So tell us the, the quick kind of two minute story of, of how you came, came to found that company originally. Man and I always been very active, uh, post kind of my rugby career, the very cliche story of pat my knee, could have gone pro sort of thing, transition quickly into spending most of my time at the gym. And that transitioned through to them being a competitive bodybuilder. Now, Matt being a credible chef and baker, he used to always cook me something after every single time I step off stage. Of course, 
six months of no chocolate, no sugar, uh, no salt. Of course, it's always a welcome treat from Matt specifically. And simply, Matt put this square box and this circle thing inside and simply said, I'm so sorry. I ran out of brownie tin, so I had to put this in a cake tin. And I looked at it and went, it's got eight slices. You can change all the flavors on the brownie. How much did it cost? How quick was it to make? Is it easy enough to change and customize the product? All the answers were yes. The following day, registered the business on company's house, set up our Facebook page. Within six months, it was 10,000 likes. This was before, of course, you could reach all 10,000 customers. Um, and then uh, essentially, we started to get 25, 50, 100, 150, 300 orders per week, which in a town such as Corby with a population of 60,000 was pretty crazy for us. Um, so we took all that capital, uh, opened up our first bakery, uh, and from there, we then franchised the business model. So a key thing for me, Jimmy, as well, is, is using entrepreneur uh, label in the right context, which is an entrepreneur takes on financial risk in pursuit of profit while trying to create a company. And that was fundamental, the spirit of entrepreneurship, which was throw all the caution into the wind and put every single penny we possibly had into this dream. And once we put all that capital within to that dream and scaled it to a Leicester site and a Lincoln site, we then exited the company, uh, funnily enough, to our countless brother, uh, who then took uh, the business to even bigger heights, open to further city locations. It's great to see that maybe in uh, Doncaster, Manchester, and also Bristol opening up. So it's great to see our, our little baby crawl to walk um, over time, but very much a business that literally landed on my lap. Um, but quickly we understood we wanted to be fundamentally within sustainability. No, it's uh, an amazing story and a great example of how local people will really support um, local businesses as, as well. Um, for those that want to learn a bit more about fungi, what's the one piece of content that they should perhaps listen to podcast-wise or YouTube for kind of like further reading or further learning, as we should call it? Well, I think Merlin Sheldrake did a pretty incredible job of releasing, obviously, one of the, the big hidden books of Untangled Life. It's a beautiful story uh, of how fungi touch our lives and, of course, the potential applications and, and products uh, which will come from them. But then, of course, individuals, I don't think you get as eminent as Paul Stamets, as an example. The Joe Rogan podcast that he does, uh, yes, with Paul Stamets, is a great representation of what it means uh, for fungi and kind of the equivalent of David Nattenborough for that particular organism is obviously really great to, to kind of see. So it's a gentleman that spent and dedicated decades of his life to this particular advancement at this kind of field of biology, uh, which of course uh, was only recategorized back in the 60s and 70s from being a plant to then having its own um, branch within the tree of life. So the Paul Stamets uh, is definitely a, a genuine, and you'll probably see where I uh, conveniently took the idea of the slime mold maze piece, which he describes within the podcast, which is extremely uh, amazing to, to watch. So yeah, Paul Stamets, Merlin Sheldrake, two great start-offs for, for Fungi, that's for sure. And what about you? Is there a book or something else that's particularly inspired you away from kind of Fungi learnings lately? So, of course, as you know, uh, not being a non-technical family, you need to work a little bit extra to make sure that at least you can have contextualized conversations with people, specifically very experienced professionals in the space. So I started with The Real Fun Activity, a university textbook called The 21st Century of Fungi. And I'm currently in the process of reading that cover to cover, uh, just to not only understand the biological processes of fungi, but more so how they relate into products and processes. 
So it's kind of, um, yeah, making sure that I always can have those great conversations with my team. That's a really important thing for Matt and I, which is we don't want to be removed from the science and the research and development because, of course, it's a key point of innovation for our company. So having as much context as possible always is always helpful and useful. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, look, Patrick, it's been fantastic to have you on and we'll be watching your story with uh, excitement and intrigue. Uh, to see how you get on um, and it would be great in the future maybe to do this with you and your co-founder at some point come look around the lab absolutely would love that would very much welcome you to that and thank you very much jimmy for your time today thanks for listening to jimmy's jobs one of the ways that we make this show possible is by the partners that we have that support us they can be like today's like the octopus group or the fintech alliance but also we've done more consumer-facing brands like Primary Bid and Beer52. You can go to our website and check out more details at www.jobsofthefuture.co. The other way the show is made possible is by me going into organisations and talking about jobs of the future and the talent that is required to fill those jobs, how you retain them, how you attract them, and how great teams are built that can achieve superb things that we hear about on this show. If you want to know more on that, drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. We always love hearing from our listeners.